In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalms chapter 15, Psalm 15. It is a very short psalm, five verses, so we will explain it first in English, and then I will give summary in Arabic at the end. So, this psalm is a psalm of David, written by David the prophet, in which David meditates over the character of the man received into the presence of God. The character of man received into the presence of God. There is no precise occasion for this psalm. We don't know what are the circumstances around writing this psalm. But together, Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, both of them actually could be written when David brought the Ark of Covenant into Jerusalem. The story that we read it in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Because this was a time when David was very concerned with question like who is worthy to dwell in the presence of God that's actually the question he addressed in this psalm and also in Psalm 24 uh, so could be some scholar said could be uh, Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 were written during the time in which David brought the Ark of Covenant into Jerusalem I'm sure you know the story. In the first time, David failed to transfer the Ark of Covenant in the right way. He did not assign the Levites to do it. And instead of carrying the Ark of Covenant, they put it on a chariot. And that's why when the Ark of Covenant was about to fall, and Uzi touched it to prevent it, actually, he died because this was not the right way to carry the Ark of Covenant. Ark of Covenant has rings on both sides, and in these rings they used to put rods, and the Levites actually carry it. So they should not have put it on a chariot. That's why in the second attempt to transfer the Ark of Covenant, David was more careful not only assigned this to the Levites, but he chose divinely appointed and godly Levites, as we read in First Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 2. And then he left the Ark of Covenant in a charge of the man whose house the Lord had blessed, his name Obed-Edom, uh, and Obed-Edom, with his sons, ministered the house of the Lord. As also we read in First Chronicles chapter 26, verse 8 and verse 12. Psalm 14, the previous psalm, spoke about those who deny the existence of God. So, actually it is logical that Psalm 15 follows Psalm 14. Psalm 14 reveals the traits of a wicked person 
who denies the existence of God. Psalm 15 reveals the characteristic of the righteous man who is worthy to dwell in the courts of the Lord. Psalm 15 we prayed in the first hour of the Agbeya, but because the Agbeya, the numbers of the Psalms is taken after the Septuagint, so you will find this Psalm in the Agbeya under number 14. I'm sure you know there are two versions of the Old Testament, the Septuagint and the Hebrew. The Bibles, the, most of the Bibles in our hands follow the Hebrew uh, translation, but the authentic translation or the official translation in the Orthodox Church is the Septuagint translation. So the numbering of Psalms are different between the Septuagint and the Hebrew. And in the Agbeya, because Agbeya is translated from Coptic, and Coptic followed the Septuagint translation, that's why in the first hour of the Agbeya, this psalm will find it under number 14. But in the Hebrew translation, you'll find it number 15. And also, uh, this psalm is very suitable to pray it while in your way to the church, or when you enter into the Lord's house before participating in the liturgy service. It is like a repentance prayer and self-examination before sharing in the Eucharistic liturgy. It is just five verses, so you can memorize it and you can say it while you are entering the church or on your way to the church. We can actually make two sections in this psalm, or the outline of this psalm. First verse is, is one section, and we call it uh, the question. What is the question? Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Then from verse 2 to 5, the rest of the psalm is the answer. So there is a question and there is answer. The answer, the characteristic of the one who can come before the Lord, who dwells in the presence of God. So let's read verse 1. Verse 1, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hell? So he's asking two questions. Who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hell? David in the second attempt to uh, transfer the Ark of Covenant to Jerusalem, start to ask this question. Who is worthy to be received as the guest of God, to enjoy the protection and hospitality of God, to dwell in the place which God has consecrated by his presence? You know, the church is considered a different place from the rest of the world. This place is consecrated by the presence of God. In, in our Orthodox theology, we call the church the icon of heaven. And we say in the litanies of the third hour of the Agbeya, when we stand in your, when, when we stand in your, in your holy sanctuary, who are considered standing in heaven. 
So this is the icon of heaven. So when we enter the church as if we are entering into the heaven. So what we have here is a picture of close fellowship of man with God. So what are the characteristics to make me in the presence of God? To be in this fellowship, in this bond, in this connection with God. And he used two verbs here, abide and dwell. In the first half, he said, who may abide in your tabernacle? Second half, he said, who may dwell in your holy hill? He used the word abide with tabernacle. And he used the word dwell with holy hill. And this has actually a beautiful meaning. The word abide refer to a temporary condition. The word dwell is a permanent position. And as you know, the tabernacle, they moved it from place to place. But when the temple was built on the holy hill, it's permanent. Also, abide can refer to our journey here on earth. Dwell, it refers to when we dwell in the kingdom of heaven, in the eternal life. So this question, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who actually is worthy to be received in the church on earth? Second part, who may dwell in your holy hell? And who actually will be received in the eternal uh, life to dwell permanently with God. So these two words suggest a progression from guest, just abiding, to full-time resident in the presence of God, dwell. So these questions, these two questions, speak not only of being at home with God on earth, but also in heaven. As I told you, the first question is about here on earth. Second question is about in heaven. Abayat used it with the tabernacle. And as I said, tabernacle is a kind of a movable temple carried on the shoulder of the priest and Levites when actually they moved from one place to another. So there was no dwelling there for anyone in the tabernacle. They just lodge and sojourn. So the first question, the tabernacle, is a symbol of the church here, the struggling church here on earth, or symbol of us, the people of God in this world, who are sojourners, sojourners here on earth. But we know that we don't have a permanent city here on earth. We are sojourners here on earth to get a preparation for eternal glory. So the second question, dwell in your holy hill. Holy hill is Mount Zion, holy mountain, where the temple was built. 
temple of Solomon. And this actually is a symbol of the kingdom of heaven. It's a symbol of the kingdom of heaven. There, after they built the temple of Solomon, the ark became immovable and no longer carried from place to place. So the, the, the temple is a fixed and permanent building referring to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, so if the tabernacle is a symbol of the struggling church here on earth, the temple is a symbol of the triumphant church in heaven. So as if David is saying, who can be considered as a fit member of the church of Christ here on earth, and thus who shall be made partaker of an endless glory? Uh, the word the tabernacle or sanctuary is synonymous with a place where God is especially and intimately present. In Hebrew, it's called uh, Shekinah. And you know Hebrew and Arabic very close. So Shekinah, very close to Arabic word, Sekhan, Yaskun, Shekinah. And Yaskun means place of, of resident. So when we say tabernacle, Shekinah is the place where God, Yaskun, where God is dwelling. So the church, in the church, his presence was so strong that not, not just anyone could enter. God fills every place. But God chose to separate the church from the rest of the world in order to remind us with the paradise, in order to be an icon of heaven. So when we enter the church, we know we are in a separate place, different from the rest of the world. So no one can enter here except those who are truly qualified. That's why he started the psalm by asking, who gets to really be in the intimate presence of God? Who is fit to enter into the presence of God? St. Augustine commented on the word holy hell and said, here perhaps he signifies at once the eternal habitation itself. Holy hell refers to the eternal habitation. That we should understand by the word mountain. Mountain, it's a huge mountain. So mountain refers to the super eminence of the love of Christ in eternal life. So the love of God is like a mountain. Like a mountain. That's what St. Augustine said. From verse 2, he start to answer the question, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hell? So he said, number one, he who walks uprightly. Number two, and works righteousness. Number three, and he speaks the truth in his heart. So in, ver- in verse two, there are three qualities. 
who is fit to enter into the house of God, walks uprightly, works righteousness, speaks the truth in his heart. So in describing the character of the man who can live in God's presence, David begins with two positive general descriptions. When he said, walks uprightly and works righteousness. The conduct of our life here is a reflection of our fellowship with God. How we conduct our life, how we live our life, is a reflection of my relationship with God. As St. John, the theologian, said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, with God, and walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't practice the truth. So if my conduct doesn't reflect my fellowship with God, but I am saying I have fellowship with God, by my works are the works of darkness, then I am a liar. I lie and I don't say the truth. So when he said he walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, speaks the truth in his heart, meaning what? Means he who is without deceit or hypocrisy. He is loving God and serving God without any deceit or hypocrisy. And also he is loving his neighbor, not only in word, but in truth. And this is constant in the whole course of his life. That's why he said, walks, walks uprightly. The word walks means it is the whole course of life. So in his whole life, he loves God and loves his neighbor. And this is clear in his conduct. He does not love by words, but by works. He is a true man. In him, there is no false way. He is not a man of deception. Speaking one thing and meaning another, definitely not. He professes nothing but what he feels and intends. There is integrity here. His mouth speaks nothing but what his heart dictates. That's why he said, speaks the truth in his heart. So we can say his heart, his tongue, and his hands, works, words, and emotions. These three are in unity and harmony. Works, hand, words, tongue, and emotions and feeling, heart. They are in harmony and unity. Hypocrisy and deceit have no place in his soul. So he said in verse 2, walks uprightly, works righteousness, speaks the truth in his heart. In verse 3, he starts to say, 
the negative that he doesn't do. So in verse 3 he said, He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friends. So he mentioned three things that he doesn't do. He does not backbite his, uh, with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friends. That's why I said it's a psalm of repentance when you come to the church and pray the psalm, self-examination. Do I do any of these things? And if I'm doing them, how can I enter the church? I should actually offer repentance before I enter the church. So in verse 3, he begins talking about negative characteristics. Backbiter, who is the backbiter? Backbiter is one who privately, secretly, behind a man's back, speaks evil of him. He devours and destroys his reputation. That's backbiter. Nor does he speak, or not, nor does evil to his neighbor. So, he does not speak evil of anyone, nor makes the weaknesses of others the subject of his conversation. But all his talks are for edification. Not only he avoids speaking evil, but he avoids also evil acting toward his neighbor. So he said, does not backbite with his tongue, nor do evil to his neighbor does not speak or do evil. He speaks no evil of any person. He does no evil to any person. He does no harm to anybody. St. Augustine again said, deceit is practice with the tongue. When one thing is professed with the mouth, another concealed in the heart. That's deceit. When I say, with my mouth, I love you, but in my heart, I'm holding grudges against you. Uh, So, does not backbite, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor he takes up a reproach against his friend. So he does not speak about the weaknesses of others or make fun of the weaknesses of others. He does not take up reproach against his friend. Verse 4. Now, after David spoke about how we deal with one another, then he moved to another point in verse 4. How the man of God evaluate other people. An evaluation is different than judgment or condemnation. For example, when the Lord said, beware of false prophets. So here, I am required to do evaluation and to say, this is a false prophet. I will not follow him. Or when St. Paul said, 
Bad company corrupts good moral. So this means I need to make evaluation. And I say, this is bad company. I'm not going to stay among them. Or in verse 1, when it said, sorry, in Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Means I will make evaluation. This is ungodly, this sinner, this scornful. Not to judge them, not to condemn them, but actually to be careful uh, for my own salvation and to pray for for these people. So there is difference between evaluation and judgment and condemnation. So in verse 4, Psalm 15, verse 4, he said, In whose eyes, in the eyes of the godly person, a vile person is despised. A vile person is despised because of the works of wickedness. But he honors those who fear the Lord. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So he said three characteristics in verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Second one, he honors those who fear the Lord. Third one, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So let's understand. He evaluates others by their conduct. He evaluates others by their conduct. Uh, David knew that we cannot love good unless we also oppose evil. Again, we cannot love good without opposing the evil. We are living in a time right now when people actually, they don't want to admit there is right and wrong. There is good and evil. Everything is okay. Everything, if, if you, you like it, if you are comfortable with it, is it okay? No. One sign of spiritual maturity is to, to be able to discern between good and evil. And in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of God is to hate evil. The fear of God is to hate evil. So the righteous man honors those who fear the Lord. But he makes his judgment or his evaluation about men on a godly basis not from partiality. Not from partiality. He evaluates by their conduct. As the Lord said, from the fruit you know the tree. A good tree will produce good fruit. A bad tree will produce bad fruit. So he knows men only by the fruits they bear. And thus he gains knowledge of the principle from which they proceed. Based on the fruits, if they carry the fruit of the Holy Spirit, then they are righteous. If they carry the fruits of the darkness, of the works of the flesh, then they are away from God. So the truthfulness of the righteous man is shown in his evaluation of men. As I said, the world now has false assessment. 
and the world force assessment are one of the evils because the world now say to the light darkness and to the darkness light and we, we read in Isaiah woe to those who say to darkness light and to light darkness a righteous man honors those who fear God so he despises the works of those who are wicked or not sincere he does not evaluate people based on outward circumstances meaning he does not honor anyone because he is rich or has a prestige or high position in the world or because of his education he honors people because of their fear of God so he honors or despises according to men's moral quality so the man who knows God puts these two group, groups on a scale first group who are rejected by God and he gives a little weight to them while the group who fears the Lord just actually he honors them and has regards towards them then the third quality in verse 4 he who swears to his own hurt but and does not change means means what the idea behind this verse is the man keeps his promises even when it is no longer to his advantage to keep the promises even he will be hurt if he keeps the promises for example if i promise to help somebody and my circumstances change i will keep my promise even this will hurt me that what he meant he who swears to his own hurt and does not change so a righteous man who knows god will make promises and will keep them no matter what Uh, the last verse verse uh, 5 he who does not put out his money at usury nor does he take a bribe against the innocent he who does these things shall never be moved so the last verse verse 5 he spoke about again the righteous man or the blameless man he knows that what he has uh, is actually gift from God the money that he has is gift from God so he treats those who are disadvantaged in a righteous way in a godly way so when it comes to money he does not take usury if if somebody is in in real need of help i will not lend him money and take high interest from him and take advantage of his necessity and his needs actually taking interest was forbidden by the law in dealing with the fellow israelites and this was considered unbrotherly act as you read in leviticus 25 verse 36 and 37 
Exodus 22, verse 25, Ezekiel 18, verse 17. And here I want to differentiate between investing together or lending money to somebody who is in need and then you take interest from them, taking advantage of this situation. In the Old Testament, they were allowed to take interest with the foreigners, not from the Israelites. But those who fear God cannot be guilty of usury or taking advantage of the need of a distressed neighbor or a poor person. Uh, Back then, and unfortunately right now, some creditors charge high interest rates that ensured a poor person could never get out of debt. Creditors could threaten debtors with prison or being sold into slavery, as we read in 2 Kings chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 1, or Matthew 18, 25 to 30, or Luke 12:57-59. The Jewish law against usury were intended to prevent that, to take advantage of a poor or a needy person. So he does not give money at usury. Number two, nor does he take a bribe against innocent. What does this mean? If I'm judging a situation and I accepted bribe, then I'm taking, uh, I will be unfair to the innocent. So uh, does not take a bribe against innocent, either to swear falsely against him, so somebody give me money so I can go and be false witness, that's to take a bribe against innocent, or to pass a wrong sentence on him because somebody give me money, bribe. Uh, so in the, I don't want anybody to say that's the Old Testament because we are bound by the Old Testament and by the New Testament. The Lord said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to complete it. And also are bound by the Lord's commandment of love to our neighbor. And definitely to take a bribe against the innocent is again the commandment of love your neighbor. Uh, and, and who is my neighbor? The Lord defined who is your neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We know there was enmity between Samaria and Judea, but the Good Samaritan helped the Jewish person, also there was enmity. If we love our neighbor with agape love, we will not take extreme advantage of them, especially when they are in need. But instead, we will be kind and generous as circumstances permit. The last blessing or the last sentence in this psalm is a blessing. He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall never be moved. So, shall never be moved from the tabernacle of God and from his holy help. He will have a place here on earth in the church of God and in the life to come 
he will have a dwelling place in the kingdom of heaven. We know as St. John said, the world is passing away and the last of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. He is, he is fit to be a member of the church of God here on earth and an inhabitant of his heavenly kingdom. He shall dwell and abide there. Not only that, but he will be a pillar which shall never go out. In, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, he described the righteous as pillars in the heavenly Jerusalem. So you can be assured that if you are one who dwells with the Lord, who knows him, and abide with him, and abide in him. And if you, through that knowledge, and with the grace of God, practice these characteristics and actions in in Psalm 15, then you will never be moved. You will never be moved. You will be steadfast, and abiding in the Lord tabernacle, and in his heavenly dwelling in his holy hill. No one and no power will move you. You shall not only be on a holy hill, uh, but like Zion, secure, immovable, stable, firm, and pillar in the house of God. This concludes Psalm 15. Glory be to God forever and ever.